you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 26. Uh, and then just as a heads up, we're going to take a little break over the summer. We haven't quite figured out what we're going to do, but we're going to we're take about an eight-week break over the summer. And then starting in mid to late August when school kicks back up, we're going to start our journey into Romans. I can't tell you how long we'll be in Romans because I'm not sure myself yet. I have avoided preaching Romans for uh, the better part of 30 years uh, in ministry. It's a, it's a challenging book. It is, uh, the, I think, the most profound book in all of Scripture. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to dive into Romans this fall. So you may just want to start reading Romans a little bit between now and then. But, but in the meantime, uh, we're still in Genesis, and we're looking at kind of looking at life through the lens of Genesis. What can we learn uh, about just day in and day out life and our relationship with God uh, and, and who He is and who He calls us to be uh, through the lens of Genesis? Uh, a mentor of mine years ago gave me this saying, which I think is absolutely true. He said this about trust. He said, trust is hard to gain, it's easy to lose, and it's essential to every human relationship. Trust is easy to gain, excuse me, hard to gain, easy to lose, and essential to every human relationship. I'm going to show you on the screen here in just a second uh, a video of how trust can be abused. And this is a very short video. It's only about 10 seconds, so watch carefully. Lock in my hands. Ready? Are we ready? Ready. Falling. Falling. (laughs) I don't know if you caught it, but they didn't catch him. You've ever, you've been a camp and done a trust fall. Anybody done, I'm sure a lot of you have done, done trust falls before. That's, that's a way to demonstrate that the group is with you, <laughs> that, the, that the group is behind you. Well, that group, uh, failed, uh, miserably, uh, in, in the trust fall exercise. That was probably their youth leader. And I, I've actually had students do that to me back when I was in youth ministry. So I can, I can appreciate that. But there's something about, about trust that's, that it's hard to earn. Uh, it's easy to lose, but it, but it's essential. In every relationship, the, the reason camps do that, the beginning of camp, they take, take groups out and they put them on the wall and they do the trust falls because they want to, to instill in people the idea of trust, but it's, it's tough to come by. Uh, I've been reading a book recently by Stephen Covey, and it's called The Speed of Trust, and he's talking about uh, trust in the, in the business world. Uh, and Stephen Covey says that trust is absolutely the most important uh, part of a business relationship, and the way Covey defines trust is this. If you're really going to trust someone, it's a combination of two things. It's a combination of character, who the person is, their integrity, and it's a question of their competence, their abilities. So Covey narrows it down to to trust and character and a competence. And I'm going to read you just a a handful of quotes uh, out of Covey's book uh, from a variety of different people that kind of build on this idea because I I think he's on to something. says you can't, uh, this is uh, from Jim Burke, who was a former CEO of Johnson & Johnson. He said, you can't have success without trust. The word trust embodies almost everything you can strive for that will help you succeed. You tell me any human relationship that works without trust, whether it's a marriage or a friendship, in the long run, the same is true about business, essentially business that deal with the public. Joe Paterno, the head football coach at Penn State, said, whether you're on a sports team, in an office, or a member of a family, if you can't trust one another, there's going to be trouble. Robert Eckhart, the CEO of Mattel, every time one of these high-level and deep-seated scandals is uncovered, the American public trusts a little bit less. 
we just don't bounce back that fast. Ralph Waldo Emerson years ago said, our distrust is very expensive. And one other Warren Buffett uh, from Berkshire Hathaway said, I look for three things when I hire people. First is personal integrity. The second is intelligence. And the third is a high level of energy. But if you don't have the first, the other two will kill you. I think all of those folks are on to something. And I, I think Covey's on to something there as well. The idea of trust is a combination of character and competence. And it's essential not only in human relationships, but it's essential when it comes to our relationship with God. If you stop and think about it, if you've studied Scripture for, for any amount of time, if you're, if you're fairly well-versed in the Bible, you'll know that the essential message of Scripture is God saying to you and to me and the rest of humanity, trust me with your life. Trust me with your everlasting existence. Trust me not only for this life, but for the life to come. God says you can't save yourself. Only I can save you. You must trust me. So the question is this morning, is God trustworthy? And, and do I trust God? I entitled the sermon, Trusting God, but not really. Uh, that's a little phrase we kind of use around our house when, we, when we're aspiring to something, but we haven't quite reached it yet. And I think that's where a lot of us find ourselves this morning. Probably the vast majority of the people in this room, if I said to you, do you trust God? You would say yes. But then you might back off and say, well, there, there may be certain areas where I trust him more than others or a little bit less, but it's, it's church, so the answer has to be yes, right? I, I, if, if I'm in church and somebody says you trust God, and there a rule somewhere that says you got you to say yes to that? Well, I came across an email this week on this very subject, uh, and the person was talking about this question of trusting God. And before I read our scripture for this morning, I want to read you bits of this email because I think the honesty within this email speaks to how we really need to address this question. The person said, I, I remember about this devotion and the, the question about trust, uh, and I didn't really think I had any trouble trusting God with most things. I had my moments, but pretty much took it case by case, day by day, doing okay. Well, I've changed my mind. I don't trust God with my family. None of them. None of them have a lot going for them in the world for various reasons, some of their own fault, their own sin, some not, but reasons don't really matter to me. I realized I had a problem when I found that I don't really want to spend any time with God lately. Nothing much to say. Because he doesn't seem to care for the people I care most about. How do you spend time with God when you don't have anything to say or you feel like you've said it? I'm not one who tends to drone. Don't remind me what I already know in my head. The feelings, the weather, circumstances are not an indication of God's love, favor, and sovereignty. But I can't get out of my head slash heart that God is also very clear in Scripture, that he does choose to whom he will show his fatherly favor. I realize that Scripture also says that God does not play favorites, but that is hard to swallow when you consider Scripture as a whole. How do you turn on trust? Trust goes deep. And what we try to do is control the surface. And what we say out loud or to ourselves or even when we talk to God. But I have found that when I sit down by myself and I'm quiet, that I'm, going, that I'm doing positive thinking and not really resting in God's provisions. The beauty of that email is the honesty. The beauty of that email is that this is, this is a disciple of Jesus. This is a person who's known the Lord for a long, long time. This is a person whose faith I have great respect. And yet, there are the moments. There are the days. There are the weeks, perhaps even the months, 
where we go through a time of saying, do I trust God? Yeah, but not really. Well, that's not news to Scripture. And it's good for us to wrestle with it honestly this morning, not just gloss over it, not just pretend like we're okay, but to really take a good hard look at what Scripture says and how we can be strengthened and encouraged in this question of trusting God. So with that in mind, kind of a long introduction this morning, but Genesis chapter 26. Hear the uh, Word of God, the first 13 verses, and you'll see them on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will, st- and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all of these lands. And in your offspring, and that word offspring in that case is singular, meaning one person, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. That word laughing there might be different if you have a different translation. It means that they were in an intimate conversation. It was, not, it was clear they weren't just brother and sister. They're, they're, it was clear they were husband and wife by the way they were acting with one another. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have lain with your wife and we, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning, uh, people desiring to have faith. Uh, Father, many of us would love to be convinced that we can trust you completely. Uh, many of us are a long ways in that journey. And we have experienced times where we've, we've seen your trust firsthand in the small things as well as in the big things. And yet there are others, Father, who have struggled mightily. Circumstances have seemed to said something other than the fact that you're trustworthy. So, Father, as all of us are on this journey of faith to one degree or another, we pray that your word would speak your truth into our lives this morning. My opinion of our faith or your trustworthiness is really not the point. What's most important is what you say, the truth that you speak. Father, forgive me for my sin. I pray that I wouldn't stand in the way of what you want us to learn and to know about you this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you'd be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. I realized this last week that uh, every time I finish reading you know, the Scripture, I say this is God's holy and perfect word, Him alone be glory, that I do say that all the time. Jordan, our youngest, is going through uh, the one-year Bible. 
uh, where you know you read a certain amount of, of chapters every day, and then when he's, when you're finished at, at the end of a year, you've read through the whole Bible. And uh, we we're sitting uh, and we we're kind of watching the hockey game and kind of reading the Bible at the same time. We, we we do that at our house a lot. And I looked over at Jordan. I said, "Hey, Jordan, are you finished reading?" And he goes, "This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To Him alone be glory." <laughs> Love that boy. <laughs> But it is God's word. We do we do firmly stand on that. But I do like Covey's equation. I, I have to tell you that. I like Covey's equation that trust equals character plus competence. And I think it's a fair measuring stick to take to Scripture this morning and to apply to our own lives. If you're going to ask me to trust God, if Scripture is going to ask you to trust God, then we need to really determine his trustworthiness. If you've ever been burned by somebody, whether it's something as silly as the video we put on this morning where somebody just accidentally dropped you when they didn't mean to, or someone's really violated your trust, there's a scar that's left there. There's an impression that makes you kind of step back and say, the next time I won't be so quick. I won't be taken in again. Remember what the CEO of Mattel said. You know, we as Americans, we're, we, we tend to be slow in recovering trust. And so I want to apply Covey's uh, equation to this passage of Scripture this morning, because I think a lot of us find ourselves trusting God, but not really. Uh, as I read this passage over and over again the last couple of weeks, it's really kind of a three-part drama, uh, and that's how I'm going to look at it. There, there are three acts in this drama, uh, all of which include the interaction uh, or the ramifications of the interaction between God and Isaac. So each one of them uh, have some role in each of these three sections. Uh, but I want to start with Act 1, and I want to begin by going back to verses 1 and 2, where we find out that there's a famine in the land in verse 1. Now, this is a very real problem. We don't appreciate the idea of famine these days. I mean, when's the last time that, that we really legitimately ran out of food uh, in this nation? Now, I understand that there are people who live in poverty, and because of a variety of different circumstances, maybe cannot afford food. But famine's not a question of, of cost. Uh, famine's a question of availability. And when there is no food and there's still mouths to feed and you find yourself in the middle of the famine, that's a real issue. A lot of you are going to go to lunch today, either run down to Schnucks and grab something, or you've already got something at home, or you're going to go to a restaurant. We don't think in terms of famine. So I'd actually do some study on famine this last week and go back and look at some of the bigger famines in the history of, uh, of the world, at least recent history. In the Irish potato famine, 1846 to 1849, estimates up to 2 million people on the, on the island of Ireland died in that famine. Uh, the great Soviet famine in 1932 and 33, when the U.S. was going through something similar in, in the famous Dust Bowl uh, of the Depression, they suggest that it, up to 10 million people died in that famine. The Great Leap Famine in China, 1959 to 1962, under, under Mao's uh, new rule and, and reign in China, they said that up to possibly 40 million people in mainland China died in that famine. As recently as 1990 to around 2003 in, uh, in Iraq, uh, there was a severe shortage of food that, that caused uh, death of people upwards of 3 million. Millions of people have died of famine. We read that and we don't stop to think about it too much, but my only point is this. Isaac has a real problem on his hands. This is not, you know, well, maybe we'll, we'll you know, run down to the quick shop and grab something. This is there may not be food and we might die. So when we read there's a famine in the land, let's not skip over that too quickly. Otherwise, the second half of this conversation won't bear its impact. But what does it say in verse 2? The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. 
dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Egypt obviously was not under this particular famine. There was food to be gotten there. And so the the easy equation would be to say, there's nothing here, let's go to Egypt. We're actually going to spend some time at the end of the sermon series as we come to the close of Genesis looking at Joseph, his brothers, and Isaac and the famine that ended up reuniting that family. So Isaac's being a smart guy. He's like, I I can run down uh, down to Egypt. I've got the wherewithal to do that. I can take care of my family. But God says, no, stay put. There's nothing simple about that command. If you know where to go to get help and somebody tells you not to, you have to wonder about their motives. So God is not offering just a simple little directive, but he's pressing Isaac's trust, whether or not he's going to believe in him by giving him this command. But he gives not only command, but he also reminds Isaac why he's trustworthy. Look at uh, verses 3 and 4 with me where God says to Isaac, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all of these lands and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is is reminding Isaac about the contract, the promise, the covenant that he swore to Abraham and that it's passed down to Isaac and also to his offspring. So what God is is, is doing is he's understanding that Isaac probably has some fear. <laughs> he probably has some questions. You know, Lord, are you sure you're going to take care of my family? I mean, I, it's, Egypt's not that far. I, we can run down and, and, and back and everything will be okay. And he says, no, stay. And remember that I will take care of you. Remember that I made a promise to your father. So God reiterates uh, this contract, this promise, this covenant that he's made. And and if you haven't been with us uh, during this study of Genesis, you can go back. If you want to look at the promise, you can go back earlier in Genesis to chapter 12. You look at chapter 15, you look at chapter 18, you look at chapter 22, where this promise is made over and over and over again. God is reinforcing his word in all those chapters with Abraham Isaac's father. And so now he's saying to the son, this promise belongs to you as well. So you can trust me. So how does Isaac respond? Uh, knowing that there's a, a problem here, knowing that, that there's a chance that his, his family's at risk, but, but wanting to trust God. Well, in verse six, it simply says this. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Isaac stayed put. He stayed home. What Isaac did was he decided to trust God. There was enough evidence on God's behalf, for Isaac to say, okay, Lord, if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'll do. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been following these emails from Kevin O'Brien down in Haiti. Kevin's a guy a couple weeks ago in the service, we prayed for him before he went, and he's been emailing back uh, the progress they're making or, or the lack thereof, the challenges they're having. And Kevin's got a construction background. Uh, part of the project that they're trying to figure out is how do they help rebuild buildings? How do they help rebuild in particular public buildings so that people feel safe and secure again? And they've been kind of running into uh, all kinds of roadblocks until this last week. And, and I'm not going to read this entire email for you because it's very long. But bottom line, here's what happened. Kevin O'Brien ended up sitting down and meeting with the Minister of Public Works in all of Haiti. He met with a cabinet level. He met with the president's right-hand guy as far as taking care of all the public works in all the country of Haiti. The, the woman outside in the waiting room told him they had two minutes to make their case for why they could bring in men who are engineers and architects and construction guys and all on a volunteer basis and could help 
help Haiti solve their problems. So this woman says, you got two minutes. They ended up spending an hour with this guy and talking to, to uh, the right-hand man of the prime minister. Uh, and I'm going to read you just a couple of quips out of, out of Kevin's email. The guy's name is, uh, his name is Jacques Gabriel. And he says, Mr. Gabriel wanted to know why I was interested in doing what I was proposing to do. He wanted to know if there were some commercial interest or if this really just was, was humanitarian. I told him the engineers were willing to come here. They were Christians. And we were doing this because of Jesus Christ, that this is what he would have us do to help people who are suffering. Uh, and then he goes through a long back and forth conversation about, about all the things they talk about. And, and then Kevin says, I said to him, all we need is a government endorsement, a letter of certificate or something that gives us government approval so that the people will trust us. That piece of trust. This he said he could not do. He said, how do I know that you are qualified just because you tell me? There's the question of trust. There, there's, there's the question of trust. How do I know I can trust you? I'll come back to what happens at the end of this conversation. But point being, that's the question that Isaac had to ask himself as he was interacting with God. How do I know that I can trust you? God says, settle down, be patient. I'll take care of you. And Isaac decides that he can trust. And so that this first act in this drama is really about character. It's about God asking Isaac to ask himself as he was interact to trust. It's God reminding him of his promises, both in the short-term help and in the long-term of what he's doing. And Isaac determines that he will trust. Well, let's move on to act two in this drama, which doesn't include God. Uh, his name isn't mentioned. It's only about Isaac and the relationships with the people around him. But, but here's the question. The question that the second uh, act in the drama, so to speak, asks and answers is this. Does Isaac trust and does Isaac prove himself trustworthy? In other words, what's Isaac's character in all of this? Well, look at verse 7 with me. It says this, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca because she is attractive and persevering uh, in, uh, in appearance. The first character trait we see of Isaac after he's decided to stay is not a character trait of faith. It's not a character trait of trust, but rather it's a character trait of legitimate fear. What Isaac isn't reasoning is this. You know what? If God said, stay, he'll take care of me. And he'll take care of my family. After all, he's made this long-term process. For some reason, Isaac doesn't quite connect those dots in his thought process. He comes to a situation where he looks and, and the guys are kind of looking at his wife and he's the, he's the, you know, kind of the minority in this group and easily, easily vulnerable uh, to some kind of attack, to some kind of abuse. And he puts two and two together and he says, I'll lie my way out of this one. I'll, I'll take care of my circumstances. You ever have that scenario in your life? where you want to trust God, but you're like, mm, I think I got a plan B that's going to work a little bit better. Isaac, the recipient of the promise, almost in an instant goes from trusting God to fearful. But notice how his fear works its way out. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, it says this. When he had been there a long time, and Abimelech the king of the Philistines looked out of his window, he saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife, this is an entrenched deceit. Isaac's been doing this for a long time. This was probably 
excuse me, it's probably a period of at least a few months where Isaac has been saying out in public, she's my sister, and then behind closed doors treating her, obviously, for who she is, his wife. This is a this is a pattern of life. This is not a one-time, hey, this crowd looks a little bit unruly. I'll say she's my sister. We'll get out of here and everything will be okay. This is a day-in and day-out experience in his life. This sin has gotten a hold of him to the point where it's how he lives. It's the decision that he makes on a daily basis. He is entrenched in his deceit. But he's also found out. Look at verse 9. So Abimelech called Isaac. You know, he looks, I don't know if he looked out his window or he's walking down the street and saw him or whatever, but he sees him and he calls Isaac and he says, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said, And because I thought, lest I die because of her. The charade becomes known to the king. It's interesting that, that people of God don't always act out of the character which they embrace about God. This is, a, this is a tough lesson for Isaac. I, I think this is a moment where, where Isaac is beginning to see that uh, perhaps he made a less than, than good decision. It, you've, you've got a person who doesn't claim to be following your God who looks at you and calls your character into question. You know, I, I've had people before say, I don't know why I would want to go to church. The people there aren't that good. And, and I would say, you know what, I, I have to agree with you. We're not. <laughs> because it's about grace. But people notice these kinds of things. And, and his lack of trust, his deceit is, is found out. It comes out into the open. And so the king says, you know, how could you say that she was your sister? And that moment where, where kind of the, the sin comes to the surface as it normally does. If you and I are living any kind of, any kind of deceitfulness, probably eventually at some point, it's going to come out. Uh, I was in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. This is going back probably, oh, eight or nine years ago. And I was having lunch and playing around a golf with a guy who had been a business partner of John Wayne's. Now, those of you that know me know that's like saying uh, I was one step short of dying and going to heaven. Okay, John Wayne was my hero growing up. I, I turned the sound off in the movies and I just recite the lines and Cindy just thinks I'm the biggest idiot in the world, which is not that far off. But uh, this was a huge event in my life. And so we're, we're, we're having lunch before we go out and play golf. And, the, and this guy says, I want to give you something, but you got to promise me that you'll always keep it and you'll never sell it. You'll never, never give it away. I said, okay, I, I guess so. Sure. And he slides across the table to me a little business card. And the front of the business card just has one name on it, John Wayne. And I flip it over on the back and it says, good luck always, John Wayne. That's how he signed all of his cards. I said, how, how did you get this card and why are you giving it to me? He said, well, we were on a plane one time going here and he's, Duke signed a bunch of them and he had me put them in my pocket. And so when he got off the plane, he, you know, he didn't want to take time to sign autographs, but he could just put them in people's hands and, and he wouldn't hurt anybody's feelings, but he could move along. And so he had some left over and I just stuck them down in my pocket. And I've got a few and I knew you're such a fan. And man, again, now I knew I had died and gone to heaven. I mean, I, I mean, I'd really reached the pinnacle. I've got a business card that, that, you know, John Wayne's fingers had, had been on. Oh my gosh, how incredible is this? So now fast forward about six or seven years. I'm, I, I've got this thing framed. It's sitting in my office and I'm looking at it. I thought, I wonder what that's worth. Not because I was going to sell it, but just out of curiosity. So I went online and I found the world's foremost expert in John Wayne memorabilia. There, there is a person who fits that, that job description. That's what this guy does. He lives out in Southern California. So I sent him an email. I got a business card of John Wayne's. Da, 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 da. He emails back, you know, there's a lot of those out there. They're not all authentic. Make a copy of it, scan it, send it to me at this number and I'll get back to you. 
Oh, well, of course I have an authentic one. So, you know, I, I don't scan it. I don't even know what scanning means. I get somebody in the office to scan, and we, we send it on the fax machine, and I get an email the next day, you have a fake. Oh, thank you <laughs> for all of you who just did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was devastated. Here's this, here's this guy who, who claims to be a disciple of Jesus who looks me in the eye and says, I got this personally from John Wayne, and he lied to me. And he lied to me. Now, before I get on my high horse too quickly and ride off into the sunset, since we're on a Western metaphor here, I think that describes a lot of us. I think there are times when just living in a little bit of deceit instead of walking by faith is really the much simpler thing to do. We'll look better in people's eyes. I'll never see that guy again. I, I, I couldn't even remember his name today. Maybe it was easier for him. Maybe it was a way that, that he could feel good about himself. I don't know. But I think that describes a lot of us. I think Isaac here and living in his fear and for him kind of telling a little white lie seems to feel better and it doesn't seem to be that far short of faith. But look at the outcome of this in verse 10 and verse 11. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Kind of the end of of act two drama is that Isaac is humiliated. He's humiliated privately. He stands with the king, the, the, the big boss in the whole area, and he has to admit his failure. He has to admit that he was less than honest, but he's also humiliated publicly because the king sends out an edict because he wants to protect his people. Here's a guy who, who doesn't really know God or love God, and he's acting better than the guy who, who does. And he says, everybody, don't touch her. She's not his sister. He was pulling the wool over your eyes. She's really his wife, so stay away from her. If you touch her, you'll have to deal with me. Isaac ends up, when you take God out of the equation, again, notice who wasn't mentioned in the second act, and Isaac is humiliated. And I think there are times in our lives when God allows us the freedom not to trust him, but also to suffer the consequences when we don't. And so act two, it shows faith. Isaac stays in the land, but it also shows a lack thereof. You know, she's my sister. Uh, and, and to the point that God, now the question is, does God disengage with us when we don't have a perfect trust? When we fall short, when we fail, when we don't live up to what we should, when we don't live out our faith, is God going to cut off Isaac? Is he going to move in a different direction? Say, well, now that I know your character is flawed, I'm going to go in a different direction with my promises. Will God condemn? Well, let's look at the last act of this drama, so to speak, in verses 12 and 13. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Remember how this story, this, this, this three-act drama began. There was a famine in the land. Isaac plants during the year of the famine, and he gets back a hundredfold from what he planted. Isaac, who, who had a little bit of faith to stay in the land, but not enough faith to really honor God in the way he lived, and God blesses him? Really? That, that's how this story turns out? I think we're looking at God's competence. Remember that God, uh, we said earlier, I like Covey's definition, that trust counts on both character 
God's saying to Isaac, trust me, I made a promise, I will keep my promise. And also competence. Is he able to do that which he says? The question becomes, why would God care for a guy who didn't trust as fully as he should? Abimelech ends up being the better guy in this story, if you ask me. The man of integrity in this story is a Philistine king whose people end up fighting with the people of Israel all throughout their their history in the Old Testament. He seems to be the better guy here. But there's a bigger picture unfolding. Salvation is coming to mankind through Isaac's offspring. God's not just looking at Isaac. God has proved he's trustworthy. In the middle of a famine, Isaac has a bumper crop. That is a miracle. And that is God's doing. God has proved himself trustworthy with Isaac because he knows that all mankind needs redemption. We're the Isaac in this story, friends. I'm the Isaac in this story. I'm the one who has a little bit of faith, but you know what? Sometimes not really in this particular area or that particular area of my life. We are the ones who are flawed. We are the ones who are sinful, just like Isaac. We're the ones who are lacking in character. We're the ones who are lacking in competence when we break God's law and we have no ability to obey. And in that moment, we must realize that only God is able to save us. And he is trustworthy. He's trustworthy both in his character and the promises that he makes and his competence and his ability to keep his word. And ultimately, this story that that has Isaac as a part of it culminates in the cross of Christ in the New Testament. When God keeps this word through your offspring, singular, I'm going to bless every nation in the world. Probably most of us in this room are not directly of the physical lineage of Isaac. We don't receive the blessing because we are blood related to Isaac. We receive the blessing because of God's mercy and grace that was poured out on the cross when Jesus took our punishment when he stood in our place and he accepted the wrath of God so that we could have the righteousness of God, so that we could be in a relationship with him. Jesus was the one who found the completeness of God's trustworthiness. How do we respond? What do you do with that kind of trustworthiness? Well, I think, first of all, we need to understand God's word. I was really excited that uh, Katie actually bought Jordan. Katie's our middle child. She bought Jordan the the, uh, the read through the Bible in a year, and I was really glad that somebody in our family was looking out for Jordan's spiritual well-being. It might have should have been his dad, but um, we need to study God's Word, and I'm thankful that Jordan's going to read through the Bible in a year. We need to understand it for what it says. We need to know that we can trust God, uh, but we also need to know that, that God is there in the hard moments, but, but the story of Isaac doesn't mean it's always going to unfold that way. You know, you could read that story and a misrepresentation would be, well, because God provided a hundredfold for Isaac, he'll provide a hundredfold for me. And I'll have a life that, that's easy and I'll get wealthy. It's kind of that name and claim it theology uh, that's out there today. And I want to, I want to tell you, that would be a bad way to read this particular passage of scripture. It doesn't take into context the rest of scripture. Why does David praise God in Psalm 23? Because you're with me even when I'm where? In the valley of the shadow of death. There are going to be moments of great darkness in our lives. There are going to be moments of great challenge in our lives. Will we trust God? Will we see him trustworthy at that moment? 
My Wednesday morning guys are going through the book of Revelation right now, and we're looking at the, the letters to the churches. And last week we looked at the letter to the church at Smyrna. Just a couple of verses I'm going to read for you out of this particular message that Jesus gives to some of his disciples. He says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I, I said to my guys on Wednesday morning, I said, you know what, I, if I was the guy in Smyrna that got that letter, I'd say, you know what, I'll be happy to deliver this to another city. <laughs> I'm out of here. Jesus isn't promising these guys anything other than struggle and suffering, but he's also promising a crown of life. So, friends, we, we need to know Scripture. We need to understand the context of God's trustworthiness, that he has the plan of salvation. We need to know scripture. We need to understand every moment of every day. But we also need to know that even when we fail, he will forgive. I mean, you see Isaac in this, this situation, and God forgave Isaac for that blunder. He had compassion on Isaac. He was able to do that because Jesus would pay for Isaac's sins some, some several thousand years later on the cross, just as he's paid for your sins and for mine. We put our faith in him. And we have to grow in that trust, but we have to understand that it's a journey. There'll probably be a moment this week where I fail in trusting God. I'm pretty sure of that, pretty confident in that. But I think there'll also be moments when I really do trust. I really do think there'll be moments where I get it even maybe in a hard moment, even maybe in a difficult situation. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, I think that's going to be the same. This is going to be true for you. I think they'll have moments where you go, oh, yeah. That's what we talked about on Sunday morning. Boy, I didn't trust God right there. But you can just turn around and say, Father, forgive me. I blew it. I was kind of like Isaac this morning. Would you have mercy on my soul? And, And your heavenly Father says, yes, child, come on back home. Absolutely. You need to understand it's a journey. You need to be gracious to yourself in some respects and make sure that repentance is a part of every step of your day. And then the last thing I'm going to offer to you is simply this. I think we all need to practice trusting God. What do I mean by that? I would encourage you to identify an opportunity for you to trust this week. I don't know if it's a family situation or like, like, like this uh, email talked about earlier on, or if it's a business situation, a health issue, it could be a lot of different places. Maybe, maybe you're just wanting to share the gospel with a friend and you've just never been able to work up the courage to sit down and have a cup, cup of coffee with them and talk to them about Jesus. It might be that you have a huge decision in front of you and you've done everything as far as worrying and planning and, and thinking, but you forgot to pray about it. I want to encourage all of us, myself at the top of the list, to find an opportunity to grow in trust this week and to be prayerful. Ask, ask for disciples around you. Ask for their help. Ask for them to encourage you to, to, to maybe hold you accountable, so to speak, that you would grow in your trust of God. Kevin O'Brien had one of those growth moments last week. Uh, I said to you what he asked the, the, the guy for, the cabinet member for, was this, was this letter, the certificate that allowed them to come in and do the work. Here's the end of the story. After some more discussion, this was the end result. And he goes through some details about drafting a letter and creating a list of names and getting everything kind of organized and ready. Mr. Gabriel said he would review the list and approve it immediately. In other words, he's going to take Kevin and his word. If Kevin tells him the men are qualified, this cabinet member is going to accept that as good enough for him. 
He would write a letter of approval that our engineers could take with them. I told him that our men would not come down here until they had his letter of approval. He had com- agreed completely with that. And then he talks about we, we got ready to leave. And Mr. Gabriel gave me his personal cell phone number and email address. I did not recognize the full magnitude of what had just happened until Eddie explained it to me in the car. Eddie was the guy that was with him. We stopped and gave thanks to God together and praised his holy name. In the middle of this conversation, as Kevin said, I didn't realize what was going on. I think what was going on was not just that God was providing a pathway for people to minister and serve in Haiti, although I think that's certainly part of it. But I think what God was doing was was saying to Kevin and through Kevin to, to us this morning, you really can trust me. 